Hello and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's talk, which I'm calling a prelude to Mexican government and politics, is my effort to sort of set the table for you as you begin to think about Mexican government and politics. And in this talk, I'm going to briefly introduce the country of Mexico to you and then walk you through some of the policy challenges that the Mexican government faces. And there are indeed quite a few challenges that the Mexican government has to grapple with. Okay, so where should we start? I, I'm going to start here. I have a deep and a profound fondness for the people of Mexico. Throughout my teens and my early 20s, I worked in jobs in the service industry, but also in construction, where I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of Mexican people and Mexican-American people, and they became my friends. The first cuisine that I fell in love with as a young man was Mexican, Mexican-American Tex-Mex food. The first language I learned and wanted to learn was Spanish. I ended up moving to Spain for a couple of years. Maybe I should have moved to Mexico. I don't know. I've been to Mexico a few times. I could go on and on. I care a lot about Mexico. I care a lot about Mexican people. And I was thus thrilled when they added Mexico to the Comparative Government and Politics course in 2005. I also think that for American students in particular, studying Mexico in an intense and empathic way gives us an opportunity to look at Mexico through fresh eyes. For it does seem to be that the Mexican government and the Mexican people are seen by most Americans as either aggressors or victims, maybe both. We look at Mexico through American eyes. And one thing that this class helps us to do is to investigate countries on their own terms. And so I'm really excited to be able to walk you through Mexican politics because Mexico and Mexicans matter to me. And I hope that if Mexico and Mexicans don't matter to you now, that that will change over the course of your studies of Mexican government and politics. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the, the place I wanted to start. Maybe I felt the need to share with you my care for Mexico. But <laughs> this podcast is hardly about me. It should not be about me. So let's cut down to some brass tacks. There are 130 million people in Mexico. It is a big and populous country. It's the 10th most populous country in the world, right? So start there. Mexico matters. 95% literate, 85% Catholic, 10% indigenous, 45% poor, and very proud. And it's important to put a thumb on that last point. Mexicans are proud people. 
Mexicans are proud of being Mexican, and they should be. There is a palpable sense of Mexican nationalism, which is in part, I should say, why American nationalism, such as it is, is such a complicated force in the region. And we'll talk about that 45% poverty rate as this talk goes on. But for now, I'd like to note that Mexico has been the victim of recurring economic crises in the mid-70s, the mid-80s, the mid-90s, and basically for the last 12 or 13 years. Mexico has careened from economic crisis to economic crisis. And it is, in some large part, because of these economic crises that the Mexicans voted out the PRI in 2000. The PRI had dominated Mexican politics for 71 years. It was hegemony. It had been called by many the perfect dictatorship. But Mexico has been democratizing since the fraud-ridden presidential election of 1988. And then finally, in the year 2000, the Voto de Miedo, the, the fear vote, was defeated by the Voto de Castigo, the, the punishment vote. So the desire to punish the PRI triumphed over the fears that people had of voting for another party, another set of rulers. And in this 2000 election, the former Coca-Cola CEO Vicente Fox and his National Action Party, PAN, won in a sort of an alliance for change. This Fox sexenio, the sexenio refers to the six-year term, the single six-year term of a president. This Fox sexenio brought a great many successes. It was very much imperfect. We'll talk about that as the class goes on. But the PAN had a second chance to rule in 2006. The 2006 election was quite a fiasco. Uh, the Federal Election Institute, or the IFE, announced a 0.58% victory for the PAN candidate Felipe Calderón. And really, if we're to be honest, it was a toss-up. It was a fraud-ridden election. Ultimately, there were no winners in that election. Calderón had to rule with a big open wound for six years. And in 2012, six years later, the PRI returned to power in the executive branch under Enrique Peña Nieto. And the Nieto term was crisis after crisis, as we will see economic crises, crises of political stability having to do with narco-trafficking. And it was in part because of the many crises of the Nieto regime that the Mexican people turned to yet another party, the PRD, which was headed by, and is headed by, the socialist nationalist AMLO. AMLO is the acronym for Andres Manuel López Obrador. And Obrador has been running Mexico uh, pretty much into the ground ever since. Again, we'll talk more about that. But I walk you through the 2000, 2006, 2012, and 2018 presidential elections to illustrate to you that after 71 years of PRI hegemony, Mexico has, through the executive branch at least, been ruled by three parties over the last four elections. Which is to say that Mexico is a country that has been transitioning from one-party autocratic rule to a multi-party democracy. 
And while, like most democracies, perhaps all democracies, it is infamously imperfect, it is that transition that I think we should focus on. And while this fledgling multi-party Mexican democracy is challenged by innumerable internal and external forces, it's really important to point out how Mexico is a fascinating case study in transitions from autocratic to more democratic rule. So with that brief introduction in mind, let's walk through some of the challenges that this fledgling democratic regime faces. The first of which is the neighborhood. The Mexican general and 30-year president Porfirio Diaz said, or is quoted as saying, Pobre Mexico, tan lejos de Diaz, tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. Poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States. To which I should add, in the modern context, poor Mexico stuck between the United States and Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador. Profoundly poor countries. Mexico has to operate in a very precarious political position. It is not easy to govern Mexico for that reason alone. We recall how in 1845, the United States annexed Texas, and then, of course, what Mexicans call the Great Unjust War of 1846 to 48, where the United States defeated Mexico and took a substantial portion of her northern territory. In 1914, the United States occupied the port of Veracruz, and Mexican people are subject to what has been called a dependent psychology. When the United States sneezes, Mexico gets a cold. Mexico is the second largest trading partner of the United States, just behind Canada. 90% of Mexican exports go to the United States and Canada. And U.S. multinationals, whether it's petrochemicals, pharmaceuticals, food processing, machinery, textiles, automobiles, all of these things are central to that trading relationship. Um, that statistic I mentioned, the 90% of Mexican exports go to the U.S. and Canada, uh, that does not include narcotics. That's a different data set, which I'm not going to dive into now. But when we're talking about the Mexican economy, we can't just ignore narco-trafficking. It is indeed big business. But Mexico isn't just trading petrochemicals, pharmaceuticals, and textiles with the United States. It's also trading people. We have a mass emigration of Mexicans to the United States. Some come to the United States in a hope to live there forever. Most come to the United States in order to make enough money to support their families back at home. Indeed, the number two source of revenue in Mexico after oil, which we'll talk about soon, is remittances which is to say the monies that Mexicans and Mexican-Americans living in the United States pay to their families who are still in Mexico. So we have a massive brain drain. We also have a drain of young, hardworking men and women. So Mexico has long been dependent on the American economy, but during the 1980s oil crisis and the ensuing Mexican debt, the International Monetary Fund floated $8 billion in loans to Mexico. And of course, as we've seen with Nigeria and we've seen with Russia, 
these loans came with strings attached, and the thickest string was pressure to marketize. And Mexico began to marketize. They began to sell off state-owned enterprises. They began to pursue policies which might be called free trade. So much so that in 1994, during the Clinton administration, Mexico joined NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that led to a near total collapse of the Mexican economy, leading to a $50 billion multilateral aid package, including $20 billion from the United States. And it is thus the case that Mexico now has a $675 billion debt. More than half of the Mexican GDP is debt. So free trade isn't always free. Indeed, free trade can be costly. Now, this could be a causation correlation problem. You know, did the Mexican economy collapse because it joined NAFTA? Or did the joining of NAFTA just catalyze what was already a substantial set of problems that the Mexican government had been ignoring for the better part of the 20th century? Maybe both can be true. And it's not in the purview of this class to determine the degree to which NAFTA is responsible or single-handedly responsible for Mexico's economic woes. But I say that to say this, one of the most profound challenges that Mexican politicians face is navigating the near impossible terrain of sharing a huge border with the United States. And then in the South having to grapple with countries that seem to totally collapse every couple of years, like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So it's really challenging. You know, bearing in mind that governing a country forces leaders to deal both with problems of internal and external sovereignty. It's a real challenge to do that. And it is in part why Mexico suffers from such economic woes. You know, so if the neighborhood is the first challenge I want to speak to, the economy is the second, right? The OECD and the WTO rank Mexican workers as the hardest working in the world in terms of the amount of hours worked yearly. And anyone who, like me, has gotten to know the Mexican worker in America or the Mexican-American worker, they will probably be like, yep, totally makes sense. I had the same experience. And while I don't want to overstate my anecdotal experience, I do want to say what the OECD and the WTO have to say. I don't know how in the world, by the way, the, you know, quote-unquote lazy Mexican worker became a trope in America. It just makes no sense. The Mexican work ethic is tireless, and thus you would think that Mexico would be a rich country, but again, so far from God, so close to the United States. The World Bank says that Mexico is a newly industrializing country, which is, according to the World Bank, ahead of Russia in most measures. Mexico is a top 10 industrial power. Uh, 80% of Mexicans live in urban environments, and Mexico is challenged to continue to modernize their urban environments and modernize the industrial sector. 
They have to modernize the agricultural sector also. Mexico can be a global leader in food production, but it's not quite yet. And part of the reason it's not is because the Mexican government puts so much focus into the energy sector, oil and natural gas. And this energy sector needs to be revitalized either through increased spending or through international investment. But until 2013, the Mexican constitution had a very clear stipulation that all of the resources that were under Mexican soil belong to the Mexican government and thus the Mexican people. So no foreign companies or corporations were allowed to extract Mexican oil until the constitution was amended in 2013, which allowed for more international investments into the state-owned oil extraction firm. You know, Mexico is a top 10 global producer of oil, and Petro Peso's rule Mexico is yet another rentier state in this class, like Nigeria, like Iran, like Russia. Why the College Board chose four rentier states is a subject of some fascination, perhaps, but it is indeed nevertheless the case. Look, so Mexico is a regional power, and it could, and maybe it should be, a global power. It is the 10th most populous country in the world. It is a top 10 oil producer. It is a top 10 industrial giant. Yet only 10% have access to safe drinking water. And thus it is that one of the primary challenges that the Mexican government faces is reducing poverty and augmenting access to basic human needs. And it's hard to do that in the context of a brain drain. And it's hard to do that in the context of dependency on oil and dependency on remittances. And it's hard to do that when the government lacks labor laws that protect workers. But we understand, I suppose, why it is that the government has not established a robust set of labor laws. Right? Because if they did, it would discourage international investment. You know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when the Mexican government sought to create laws that would protect workers, what did the United States do and United States multinational firms do? They pivoted to China. And so Mexico is in this impossibly precarious position where passing laws and enacting policies that would protect their environment and protect their workers has resulted and could result in the future in their number one trading partner taking their business elsewhere. I mean, why would Kellogg's Cereal or Ford Motor Company, both of whom have huge campuses in Mexico, continue to do business there if they can do business cheaper somewhere else? Maybe move down to Honduras. The Honduran government would appreciate that. Probably pay zero taxes. And it's really hard for the Mexican government to appropriately tax these companies and corporations because they're wearing the pants. It's also hard for the Mexican government to tax its own people. Taxes in Mexico account for only 20% of GDP. This is the lowest among all of the OECD countries. This is kind of like Russia. The 
government doesn't really tax the people in a substantial way. And so the people thus have a hard time asking for much from the government because they don't give the government much in terms of taxes. You know, and poverty is most acute in the south of Mexico. We have this really substantial and frankly ugly cleavage between the north and the south, the natives in the south and the mestizos in the central and the north. In the south of Mexico, you have some 60 languages being spoken. You have dozens of indigenous tribes, and they are treated as though they were lower than dirt. And we'll talk about the protest cultures that have emerged as a result of that, particularly in Oaxaca. And we'll talk about the Chiapas uprisings and the culture of terror that that created in the 1990s. But we also have to talk about narco-terrorism and narco-trafficking and how that exacerbates poverty and the culture of fear in Mexico. Look, in, in order to reduce Poverty in Mexico has to fight narco-trafficking. In order to reduce poverty, Mexico has to reduce the cumulative cleavages between the North and South. They have to expand the tax base. They have to create labor laws that protect workers. They have to create policies that keep young, smart, motivated, hardworking Mexican men and women home instead of going to the United States. And they have to reduce corruption at home. According to Transparency International, Mexico's corruption rank is 124 out of 180 countries in the world. So Russia is 129 and Iran is 140 and Mexico is 124. So they're all sort of in that same neighborhood. Uh, China's 78. The U.S. is 25. I could go on. On their report card from Transparency International, Mexico earns a 31 out of 100. I mean, imagine if that was your score on a test or a quiz. That's not just failing. That's failing abysmally. And in order to reduce poverty, Mexico has to substantially reduce corruption. But I want to also argue that in order to reduce poverty... Mexico has to substantially reduce its misogyny. The machismo in Mexican politics and culture has just got to go. Women didn't enjoy the right to vote until 1953. The patriarchy is alive and well in Mexico. But in 2000, there was an IFE law. This, again, is that Federal Election Institute demanding that women constitute 30% of party candidates. And since then, things have been changing in a positive way for women. Women currently comprise about a quarter of the Chamber of Deputies and about 20% of the senators, and that's progress. But it's not even close to victory. And while women are more likely, though not likely enough, to enjoy elite office, women are only half as likely as men to be in the workforce. So 80% of men and 40% of women are in the workforce, and that's a problem. It's a problem, but it's changing. In 2020, women comprised one-third of STEM majors. And so there is some heartening news coming out of Mexico 
having to do with the repudiation of the patriarchy, but the hegemony of machismo and Catholicism and patriarchy is live and well in Mexico. And in order to get Mexico out of poverty, and in order to make life better for more Mexican people, the cradle-to-grave misogyny has just got to end. And one way to help to end it is education. You know, and that's another challenge that the Mexican government faces. About 70% of Mexicans graduate high school. About a quarter of Mexicans graduate from university. And as we know, education is a powerful force. It's a powerful force for modernity. It's a powerful force to end patriarchy. It's a powerful force to improve the economy. But it's also a problem that a lot of Mexican university graduates, the first thing they do is apply for their green card to the United States or otherwise try to make their way to the United States. So it's one thing to invest in education, but it's yet another thing to create an economy for Mexican graduates to support. So if we're talking about young, aspiring people, we should probably talk about those on the other side of life. And it is indeed another challenge that the Mexican government faces, which is that they have an aging population. And this aging population hardly has a security net to speak of. 10% of Mexicans are over age 65, and this is projected to be about 20% by 2030. Look, if we judge the functionality of a political system based on the degree to which it caters to the needs of the most vulnerable members of its society, the young, the elderly, and women, Mexico is not doing so well. But it's doing a lot better than it was under the clientelistic and corporatist structures of the PRI for 71 years. Mexico has managed to substitute a competitive, aspiring democratic system for its autocratic system. You know, I had mentioned earlier in this talk that the PRI's rule had been called the perfect dictatorship. I don't have a whole lot of space for that type of oxymoron. There is nothing perfect about it, and there's nothing perfect about Mexico's competitive multi-party democracy. It earns a score of 62 out of 100 from Freedom House, but importantly, it earns a score from Freedom House of 4 out of 4 on political participation. Mexicans are free to protest. They have a free press. They are free to vote for the party which they believe will foster their interests best. And like I said, they've voted for three different parties to take the presidency over the last four presidential elections. And so there's reason for hope. And I know I've said this before, right? I've talked about reason for hope in Russia. I I, I get it. Maybe it's hard to see reason for hope in Russia, I've talked about reasons for hope in Nigeria, and I get it. Maybe that didn't strike everyone as realistic, though I might politely disagree. But surely we must agree that there's a reason for hope in Mexico. The data supports it. It's not just about my feelings. 
you know, I have a particular affinity for Nigeria and Nigerian people, and so I have hope because I know how awful it would be if things fell apart. The data is not great for Nigeria. The obstacles to success, the obstacles to a sustainable, competitive, multi-party democracy with rule of law are great in Nigeria. But Mexico doesn't occupy the same neighborhood as Nigeria. While Mexico is a diverse and federal state in an imperfect neighborhood, Mexico has a lot of pathways towards stability. And it is my firm contention to you that not only is there reason for hope in Mexico, but the last 20 years of Mexican politics and culture speaks to a rational reason for hope. Because I agree wholeheartedly with the former president, Vicente Fox, who said, Mexico doesn't deserve what has happened to us. A democratic change is urgent. A change that will permit us to stop being a loser country. Can you imagine how hard it must be to say that Mexico a proud people, a top 10 oil producer, a top 10 industrial giant, a proud, hardworking people, and to have to say, we're a loser country. We've lost the race over and over again. Vicente Fox is being honest. Mexico has lost a few too many rounds. And one thing I would challenge us to think about is what types of structural changes or what types of policies or approaches can the Mexican government deploy in an effort to make Mexico a winning country. And as we dive further into Mexican politics, I would urge you to keep that question firmly in mind. And thus, I hope I have more or less successfully set the table for you and that you can begin to study Mexican politics with all of these challenges in mind. I wish you health, I wish you wellness, and I'll catch you next time.